Okay. Is everybody ready? No driving gloves for probably 45 to 60 minutes. Not five. you doing Derek oh, I'm doing pretty good John you've been doing good oh I'm hanging in here other than slight technical problems and little mistakes and this and that oh uh, we're talking all podcast what are you thinking of the uh, daily episodes so far I'm, I'm really uh, I'm, I'm getting into them John I think it's something that I'd hoped we uh, would do for a long time had the pleasure of uh, doing my first one recently hoping I'll, I'll get a few more of those out there as well for our uh, listeners and I uh, think you're doing a, a great job putting it together John like I say as as a historian I enjoy sharing those tidbits of history uh, to our listeners well we haven't had any negative comments on it yet i'm still not really sure whether to keep it on the main feed or create a second feed for it we're trying to keep the episodes less than five minutes so that potentially if i put it on its own feed you can add it to your smart home devices daily briefing and it'll just play you this little five minute snippet you know while you brush your teeth or something in the morning so we're trying to keep the episode short tight but what has surprised me about those episodes even though they're less than five minutes usually about you know no more than four minutes 40 seconds because we got a little bit of an intro and outro completely different than the actual podcast just to give you that difference those little suckers take a long time to put together this show being 45 minutes to an hour with editing and a li the little bit of publicity i do figure it takes four to five hours to put out one of these episodes including recording time that little five-minute blurb takes three hours to put out by the time you find the subject, by the time you research the subject, by the time you read the articles and take your notes and then rewrite so that it's into the script. They're a lot of work, but really interesting, and I've learned a few things from them. And, and that is exactly why you all should share the No Driving Gloves podcast to as many friends as possible because it really makes the work that we do on this end, and especially John does with our editing and, and all the work, it makes it worth our time. And, you know, we're, we're in this for the long run. And you guys know, for those that have been listening to, to us from day one, uh, we, we kind of put our hearts and souls into this <laughs> outside of our daily jobs. We, we like doing this. And uh, the more you share and the more listeners we get, uh, the more we can we can have fun with the podcast and, and do these things. Yeah, just let us know your feedback. Uh, sharing is the best thing you can do. Of course, buying us a coffee slash some gas at nodrivinggloves.com slash coffee uh, is always nice. A little bit of that money goes back into the oh, – all that money goes back into the podcast. Like I said, because I'm all into the short stuff, I thought we would just hit on some – 
pertinent. It's not an evergreen episode, sorry. But some of the interesting things that have happened lately in the automotive world. Uh, I got an article from SEMA. I've got an article about, a, I guess you'd call it a retro piece of equipment about movie cars. I, I mean, we should point out as, as we're talking, you know, number one, we have to remember that things that are happening today or in the present timeline are going to be history one day. We like documenting these things on the show because 50 years from now, somebody might come back and listen to this podcast and use it as a uh, historic reference. And also, John mentioned we have a uh, article out of SEMA because we're recording just after SEMA uh, came to an end uh, this past week. So SEMA is kind of one of the big things in the automotive news right now. But I'm flipping through some articles, Derek, and one crossed my desk and it's This is a little bit older article that I have linked in our notes, but it's still relevant. I just read something about it recently. The 26 Ram Dakota to fill the slot between compact and midsize trucks. I had a flashback to about 1985, 86. Do you remember what this flashback might entail? Uh, you had a Dakota. Dakota truck that you modified? No, not quite. My dad purchased one of the first Dakotas. I believe it was an 87 model year. Oh, all right. And the whole thing the Dakota touted as it was being released, it fit the slot between a compact and a mid-size truck. Or a full, uh, well, actually a full-size truck. So they're going for the same market here 30 years later. Why'd we ever kill the Dakota? Well, but here, here's my question about this, John. Headline is, to fill the slot between compact and mid-sized trucks. What is that slot? I didn't know there was a spot between compact and mid-size. I thought it was compact, mid-size, and full-size trucks. Is, are, are, we, are we bringing out a new slot in the truck world? or what? I'm, I'm a little confused. Well, that's what... The Dakota's famous for doing. <laughs> Confusing people. When it originally came out, it was, you had all your little mini trucks, your S10s, your Ford Rangers, your uh, Nissan 720s, your Nissan Hardbodies, your Mazda B2000s. And the Dakota f- was just a little bit bigger than those. Still available with an eight-foot bed if you wanted, uh, at least for a few years, but smaller than the full-size trucks. Now we've got these new compact trucks, the Ford Maverick, the Hyundai, is it Santa Fe, which for some reason they call these things compact trucks, which are still bigger than the original Dakota. And we have our Ford Rangers now and our Chevrolet Colorados, which are midsize trucks. They grew into the Dakota. Now those trucks have grown into what we used to call full-size And full-size trucks have just become gargantuan trucks. So is there a market between the Maverick and the Hyundai and uh, to the the Ranger and the Colorado Canyon? I'm not sure there really is because you're going unibody pickup to body-on-frame pickups, and, and there's a little bit of difference there. It's like, I get well. I guess what you're saying to answer your question, I just figured it out. Just popped into my head. We had the 
El Camino, the Ranchero, and then eventually the Dodge Rampage. Mm-hmm. And those were mini, mini trucks. They were huge. Then you had your mini trucks, which, like I said, were the, your S10, your Nissan hard bodies, your Mazda B2000s. And then the Dakota slid in. And then you had your full-size trucks. Now, I guess, you can kind of think, because that El Camino and uh, Rampage were unibody trucks. The Maverick's a unibody truck. The the Santa Fe is a unibody truck. And now Dodge is going to slip in with this unibody Dakota that's going to be a, a little bit bigger than them, but just a touch smaller than the body-on-frame vehicles. But here's my question. Doesn't that just make it fall into the same class as the other unibody trucks? Like it's, They've just decided to make it a little bit different size. I mean, it's like saying, uh, to me, that would be like saying, oh, the uh, GM coming out and uh, back in the day and saying, well, you know, the the all new Camaro is is going to fill the slot between this and this because it's we made it just a little bigger than the Mustang, so it's not a pony car. Like, to, it's just to me it, and and it's marketing, right? I mean, it's just trying to get people to read your article and, and learn about your vehicle but it just to me it's just okay it's 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 ram's entry into competing with the maverick and the you know all those uh, unibody trucks that are coming in yeah and it's the exact well it's the exact same way dodge in the 80s which is now ram or dodge trucks in the 80s they did it back then they built something just a touch bigger than what was available. And I think that's what they're going to do here. You're going to get something that's just, it's still going to be unibody. So it's still going to have that car-like SUV ride. I guess you're probably going to, you know, the the, the cab's going to be two inches wider instead of being like going to from a Maverick to a Ranger, eight inches wider and a couple of things like that. So they're, they're trying to create a class that is technically probably where the next Maverick's going to go as the Maverick begins to get bigger. That's why I, you know, that's why I called this article to attention. We're reliving history here. Ram trying to introduce a truck for a segment that questionably doesn't need a truck, or <laughs> do we need this segment? Or is it really just marketing itself and just exactly as you said, Derek, as the same truck, but different. Exactly. And, and in the article they mentioned, it sounds like, you know, with all of these, there's not a lot of detailed information quite yet released out of RAM. The article goes into questioning if it will be on the STLA small, medium, or large platforms. Uh, yeah, which, which one of those they're probably going to be using or um, you know to, to build this vehicle because of course then you have above the STLA plat- large platform the STLA uh, body on frame platform which uh, obviously this is not going to be because it's going to be a unibody uh, mid-size whatever classification they're going to put it in uh, so they're they're Motor Trend, the article, is is speculating that it'll be on the STLA large platform and come with a variety of powertrains from 2-liter turbos to hybrids. So 
and possibly a full of full electric vehicle. This is to me reading through this the speculation. This is just Ram's competition to the Ford Maverick. That's what I see. Yep, and now I'm locating a more up-to-date article. I think everybody on the podcast knows I'm normally a truck guy. I don't have a truck right now. Yeah, really, I've been seeing the Ford Mavericks coming out and some of these, you know, newer trucks that are coming out. And, you know, John, you mentioned it earlier, the Ford Ranger and uh, the Chevy Colorados and, and, you know, these vehicles, uh, these trucks that are coming out that are essentially what, when we were growing up, you would have thought as the small series vehicles, right? Because we had the 1500s, the 2500s, the 3500, you know, your, your full-size trucks. And then we had the small series, the Chevy S10s, the Ford Rangers. But you're right. I mean, really, the, the new Ford Ranger, the new uh, Chevy Colorado, and those trucks, they're really about the size of what the 1500s were when we were kids. I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Like, you know, do I really need to spend the money on a full-size 1500 or 2500 series truck? Now, granted, someday I I, I do because I'm, I'm going to be towing trailers and stuff. But really, for the majority of the day-to-day use that I need trucks for, something like the Ranger or the Colorado is, is going to cut it, you know? And then... So I've been I've been thinking a lot. I'm not sure what I'm going to do here in the next year or so, but it's there. Those trucks are on my list just because, like I say, in reality, you take a picture of one next to, say, early to mid '90s era full size truck, and dang, they're they're pretty close in size. You said it, and this is my question. That's why I said the new the new full size stuff is gargantuan. Back when the say the '88. Chevy Silverado 1500 was introduced, when the 94 Dodge Ram 1500 was introduced, when the 97 Ford F-150, when it went to its new aero body style, was introduced. What did you use to tow then? Didn't you use those trucks? I wasn't I wasn't really driving at that point, John. But yes, you're right. I mean, I grew up on the farm, and yeah, I mean, we used those 1500 series trucks to tow i mean we did you know you pull the trailers around pull you know yes you're right john you are correct in saying that now i haven't looked at the tow capabilities towing capacity of the new you haven't been looking into the new tow capacities of i think john has a point here these newer mid-sized trucks if we want to call them that do a little research find out what the tow capacity is Maybe we need to do it on the show. Compare what the new mid-sized trucks, uh, you know, towing ca- capabilities are compared to, say, the late '80s and early '90s, and even in the mid '90s, uh, pickups are capable of. And you, you are exactly right with what you just said about what are the tow capacities of these new trucks. My money is they're about they're not the same as the new Ram 1500 or you know. 30,000 pounds, you know. But I bet you they're very similar to the stuff that we were using 15, 20 years ago, which seemed to be adequate to tow things back then. It's a question that always crossed my mind is, back in the 60s, we used our cars and our station wagons to tow trailers and RVs and 
and those weren't made out of lightweight materials. It's not like the trailers were really light and got heavier. You know, those were body-on-frame cars, so I understand why we're not necessarily towing as much with, what do I want to say, um, the Buick Regal, whatever their station wagon was a few years ago, or, or Cadillac STF, or CTSV wagons. I understand why we're not towing with those today. But I'm thinking, if the towing capacity, I mean, all you're going to do is pull a enclosed trailer with a car, which people have been doing for 50 years plus, and they were doing it with the trucks, you know, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, they were doing it with the trucks of the late 80s, early 90s. Why won't these, quote, mid-sized trucks, which are as big as full-size trucks with better powertrains and better technology, do the work? We might make that an episode and do some of that comparison. Let us know what you would like or what you think on that. Because I've really, you know, I I want a small truck. I really love my Transit Connect. They're going away. That was a that's the perfect size vehicle for me. But I've been looking and going, you know, the Ranger's not too bad. I don't quite want a Maverick. A Maverick doesn't do it for me. I don't like the styling. The bed size just isn't a bed size. I kind of like the Ranger right now and the Dakota, if it comes out unibody, I won't care for it as much as if it is uh, kind of a body-on-frame or a two-piece truck, which the news is still mixed on it. Uh, why I was having to reboot a few things, I did a quick look, and some articles are saying 2024. Well, 2024 models are here, and we don't have a Dakota on the Ram order page. Boy, that ep- boy, that subject sure went a lot farther than I thought it would. <laughs> You know, I said the same thing while you were uh, off the air there, John, for a minute. Is It sounds like we need to do a truck episode that discusses the history of trucks, maybe, a little bit. But then also this interesting idea of, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, we were towing stuff with trucks that were full-size at that time. And, you know, these mid-size trucks are now that size. And, and do some comparisons. You know, I'm, I'm doing some quick looks here. You know, a, a 2024 uh, Colorado with the Trail Boss package, tow capacity of 7,700 pounds. That's pretty good. Let's go ahead and jump to, from gargantuan trucks, as I've called it, to the fun, fresh, and foldable, as the Honda website calls it. The Honda Moto Compacto. It is now available for for purchase. You know, this is coming out mid February. You've been able to order it for a couple of weeks. A thousand bucks on the through directly through Honda. From what I hear, dealers are marking them up a thousand bucks. So they're figure nineteen ninety five at your dealer. I know where I'm getting mine if I get one. These things are so damn cool. I always like this stuff when I was at the Barber Museum. The fold, kind of the fold, foldable kind of the foldable motorcycle yeah yeah these are these are cool and have a great history because of course honda is playing off the moto compacta or yeah honda's playing off Whew. okay give me a minute here reset honda is playing off the old moto compo motorcycle scooter they had back in the day that was actually an option 
on the uh, small uh, Honda Today cars. You could actually order these. They fit in the back of the hatchback of the Honda Today, and essentially you you would you would drive into the city or be driving in the city with your your Honda little hatchback and you'd get to a point where you couldn't take the car any further say into you know public spaces parks things like that you'd be able to pull your moto compo out unfold it fire it up and go driving about and that's you know they they're playing off of that with this new Moto Compacto, which of course the Moto Compacto now is an all-electric foldable kind of scooter bike, and uh, I think it's just it's fantastic. John, like you said, the barber has some examples of these. We have them at the Lane Motor Museum. You know, we have a, a Moto Compo, and we have other suitcase scooters, as they're like to be referred to. And uh, these are just they're. It's an interesting and cool part of of transportation history. Yeah, if I lived in New York City or something like that, this this would be ideal. Be able to carry it up to the you know apartment, throw it in the back of your real car. You know, I'm not sure where I'd use it in Birmingham, Alabama, but I can see I can see these becoming really popular in those suburban urban towns where you. You know, you live in your subdivision, and it's got its own shopping center and such. This thing would be great. When I lived in uh, Fairfax, Virginia, this would have been great to run up to the grocery store with or, you know, run down the street and pick up something small or go visit the neighbors without having to get in the car. You know, kind of like a a Vespa for your pocket. Yes. Yeah, and I'm actually looking forward. I, I'm, I'm hoping we'll uh, acquire one of these at the lane because – yeah, we've we've got our Moto Compo, and uh, you know I've had the chance to to demonstrate that vehicle, and you know actually show people how it folds and unfolds, and fires up, and actually you know drive it around the museum a bit, and it's they're just fun. They're fun. You just get on them and go and zip around, and man, they're there's something to it, especially in the city, right? I mean, out here where I live in the the middle of nowhere, rural Kentucky. Uh, I mean, it'd be fun to run up and down the road a bit, but you know that's that's about it. But I, in the city, I mean, these things would be absolute. Are not would be they are absolutely fantastic. Well, we've actually done present. We've done '80s nostalgia. Now we've done '70s nostalgia. Let's kind of look at what would I say? Let's go back to '80s quote supercar nostalgia. I'm not sure a DeLorean would fall into supercar, but maybe exotic car nostalgia of the 80s. And this is the only article I've really pulled that I found interesting from SEMA. And I don't have much detail on it other than some photos and a very horribly laid out, uh, what I want to say, reader board. I don't know who their graphic designer was, but this board could have been done a little bit better in my opinion. But the DeLorean GTO, talk about combining names, trying to grab everything you can. We have John Z. DeLorean and his gullwing car. And this is by DeLorean Motor Company, the company out of Florida that I believe owns the right to DeLorean and the logo, etc. And then they throw GTO on it. 
which I'm really surprised they're able to do by knowing the GTO trademark. Ferrari holds it, and so does General Motors. And I have a friend who has a business that's called GTO, and he actually was sued by Pontiac when Pontiac existed because of the name of his company and had to completely differentiate himself from the automobile. So how does DeLorean Motor Car Company get away with using the GTO nomenclature on this DeLorean? And then I don't get where you really get GTO because it's not V8 powered. It's a V6 car. And yeah, I'll give you credit that, you know, the General Motors six cylinders can make some power. We're talking 350 supercharged horsepower, etc. It's just, I don't know, do do we need to keep introducing DeLoreans? I mean, we just had DeLorean's daughter throw out sketches of a new DeLorean that looks a lot better than the other DeLorean motor car companies, electric four-door DeLorean. I'm, I'm kind of tired of DeLorean, I guess. It's interesting, right? But I'm, I want to go back to something you said. You said that, you know, how can it be a GTO without a V8? I mean, GTO doesn't mean V8, John. I mean, GTO in, in Italian is Gran Turismo Omologato. Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's nothing in there that specs that it has to be a V8. It just has to be a leisurely, comfortable Grand Touring car. Then why can't you leave the Saab V6 in it and just put a better suspension on it? Oh, I suppose you could. I mean... If you're going to sell me a DeLorean and highlight it's the GTO model, I want something that reminds me of either the Pontiac GTO, which when I think Pontiac GTOs, I don't think inline sixes, or the Ferrari GTO, which, yes, can be anywhere between a V8 to a V12, depending on the era of the, the GTO, the 599 GTO, the original 250 GTO, being 12 cylinders, the 288 GTO being a twin turbocharged eight cylinder. It just, I don't know. It just seems named wrong to me. And they do a couple little tweaks to the DeLorean that I think ruin some of the nostalgic body lines. I don't know why I'm commenting on it. I just don't think DeLorean GTO is way to go. I don't like, like I said, I don't like the presentation, the graphic designer screwed up the board it's and i'm not finding anything that special it's a motor swapped delorean with a custom interior uh and, and going back i want to go back to gto uh gran turismo homologato which translated means grand touring homologated homologato is an approved you know in italian is approved or you know, they, they use it as homologation. You know, again, a grand touring car, kind of this, again, idea of not really a, specifically a sports car in the way, or a muscle car, the way we think of it, in my opinion, but grand touring, right? I mean, something that is a little larger than a two-seat sports car, things like that, but also has that kind of racy aspect of homologation so, again, to me, not meaning that it has to have a V8, but it doesn't hurt. Like I said, I don't know why I went off on the tirade about that car. but Well, and I really do think, like you said, I think the name GTO should kind of just be 
be left to the history books at this point, maybe. I'm going to close out the show with one last bit of supercar 80s news. Not sure if the money's right on this one, but it is an icon. It's probably the most memorable movie car of the last 15 years. I was going to say, correct me if I'm wrong, but back in 2013, there was this little Leonardo DiCaprio flick called Wolf of Wall Street. And has probably the mo- one of the most iconic scenes of the last 15 years where Leonardo's character took some expired products. This is why you should never eat anything that's expired or potentially expired. Went for a drive in his 1989 Lamborghini Countach or Countach 25th anniversary coupe. Had a nice drive. And got back home, and we all know what ended up happening. I think just about everybody's seen The Wolf of Wall Street. If you hadn't heard, on uh, November 25th, 2023, Bonhams is auctioning that exact movie car Lamborghini. Do you want to tell people what makes this one very special there, Derek? Uh, not sure where you're going with that one, John. Because CGI is very expensive, and Martin Scorsese is very particular and pays attention to details, he chose not to use a replica for these scenes. And the car that we see in the movie, demolished, is the actual Lamborghini that DiCaprio drove in the scene, drove home in the scene, and then afterwards, Scorsese beat the hell out of it. And the car you see wrecked in that scene is that real Lamborghini. We're looking at an iconic vehicle that people definitely, a Derek and I's age, probably had posters of on their wall. I mean, I had the six-foot poster of a Lamborghini Countach, black, with the woman draped over it in my bedroom. You know, So you have this iconic car, you have this iconic movie, you have this iconic director, you have this iconic actor, you have this memorable... And when you think Wolf of Wall Street, this is a scene everybody remembers, not him standing on the desk screaming. You remember the Lamborghini. A 25th anniversary Countach will normally sell in the neighborhood of four to $600,000 in today's market, possibly a little bit more. I can't remember what the record price is on one. Do you, would you pay, Derek, if you had the money, and would you pay $2 million to have this car? No. Is it because you're not a fan of the movie, or is it because you value $2 million and would like to be able to drive the car you spent $2 million on? Oh, good question. Uh, well, I'm, I'm not really... I have no burning desire to own a Countach. That's part of it. Probably could find better things to do with $2 million. Yeah, I'm not... Uh, you know... Movie cars don't do much for me. There's very few movie cars that I get excited over. None of none of what this car represents really like calls out to me to throw two million dollars at. If you don't look at it as a car, but you look at it as as art, is it two million dollars? May may maybe. I don't. Ooh, I don't know. The the wrecked the the one wrecked movie car. I can think of that I would 
actually seriously consider purchasing would be the original, and I'm, I mean the original here, Eleanor. That, I, that would have been my guess for you. From H.B. Halicki's car. Which still exists not, not, in as wrecked form. It still exists. As far as I know, the family still owns it, I believe. I believe so. Um, need, to, need to do some research on that. But, you know, and that's a wreck. They left it in the state that it was in when the filming finished of the original Gone in 60 Seconds. You know, that's, that's just fascinating to me. But I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it's because it's like modern cinema. I don't know. Just maybe as art but is it really art is it i mean you can't drive it it's going to be something you display in your garage or your living room or yeah yeah i mean is it did they say it's not drivable i mean everything i've read is pretty much it's not drivable i mean i mean the wheels are straight <laughs> but yeah i mean and i can't even see it like uh, yeah i guess it's going to have to be the you know, like private collector that just really, really appreciates Scorsese's and DiCaprio's work. Is that where you think the money's going to come from? And and the film, I guess. But I can't figure out where the money's going to come from because to me it's just, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like that significant of a car. I mean, <laughs> was the movie significant? Yeah, I mean, it was... It was Hollywood's version of something that happened in real life. Uh, you know, the whole Wolf of Wall Street uh, story. I don't know. I, it doesn't have, to me, like, okay, the, let's, let's, let's think about other movie cars that got wrecked, other than uh, the original Eleanor. I can see where James Bond, any, the Bond cars, especially the Aston Martins, they sell for a, a chunk of money. When you look at the James Bond franchise and the following and the significance of those movies in you know cinema, there's a whole other level to that compared to The Wolf of Wall Street. And I, I guess maybe even to me, is The Wolf of Wall Street really even one of Scorsese's best films, right? I mean, look at the film Scorsese did. I don't know that I would put Wolf of Wall Street up there uh, in really, you know, some of his best. I mean, it's a it, it good film. Don't, I'm not saying it's not a good film, people. To me, there's just so much else out there that is so much more significant than that Kuntak scene in Wolf of Wall Street. Does that make sense? Am, am I, am I? It, it does make a lot of sense. And, I think that's where the value's coming from, is I think they're looking a little bit beyond the car market. And I don't know, is a car, uh, is an automobile auction correct for this car? Or should Bonhams put it in another style of auction with movie memorabilia? Because car people are going to get attracted to it, if it's even in movie memorabilia. But you might get some movie buffs into it. Is it something if you're a diehard DiCaprio fan or a Scorsese fan? Is that the person that's going to buy it? Not necessarily the car guy. Because what I keep looking at and what I keep thinking about when I saw this car was coming up for auction, it was announced a few months ago. Over the summer, I believe maybe it was spring, the YouTube channel VinWiki interviewed the gentleman who presently owns 
the Lamborghini Countach from the opening scene of Cannonball Run. The 12 exhaust pipes, CB antenna. I can't remember who drove it in the first Cannonball Run. I want to say Catherine Bach and Suzanne Summers or something. You know, at some point, they all were. To me, as a car guy, that car would be worth closer to $2 million than the Scorsese, this Scorsese car or this Wolf of Wall Street car because that car runs and drives and you saw it perform. And that is one of the most iconic car movie scenes. I mean, I just saw, you know, a picture of that scene in the cop car on Facebook this morning. It shows up every couple of weeks, even more so than Eleanor or the bullet or um, is it the vanishing point challenger, you know, eight eighteen van night rider i honestly think i see that lamborghini more and it's has its third owner it was the studios or the gentleman that owned it lent it to the studios and then sold it to a guy that actually drove the hell out of it and repainted it changed the interior and, and then this other gentleman acquired it from that guy and i guarantee you he didn't pay anywhere close to two million dollars for it that's my guess but he doesn't act like he paid $2 million for it. He actually seems like a very normal person. I mean, he's obviously got a little bit of wealth, but I don't think he's got, I have a $2 million car in my car collection kind of wealth. That's what I keep comparing this car to, which if it is $2 million, which would I pay $2 million for? And my wallet would lean towards Cannonball Run more than Scorsese and some drugged out criminal driving <laughs> driving and crashing this car yeah it's a neat scene if you i guess if you look at it from the way the surprise element and it really hits home i imagine for people that have had you know driven very very drunk or very very high that you forget some things on the way home well you know <laughs> totaling your lamborghini and this scene is what was forgotten you know, John, maybe that's the other thing to think about, though, and it just popped into my head, which is maybe we need to think about the younger generation is, and, and I don't know the answer to this, is The Wolf of Wall Street a cult classic with a younger generation and this car can represent part of that story? So is it is it a younger generation behind us that is going to have the desire for this car? And is that what might drive the market up on it? Much like I think of, you know, the original Eleanor. Now, that was before my time, but I like older movies. So to me, it's it's a fantastic car. Um, you know, the bullet car, the the various older cars that were from a different generation that bring money is it part of that is it to us it's like oh this thing yeah what makes it worth two billion but to a generation younger than us is it oh man i gotta have that car that's from the wolf of wall street that's you know that's that's my all-time favorite movie it's a classic that you know is could that be part of it well then you bring into that we'll go back a generation Yes, there are people a generation older than us or younger than us 
that have $2 million to spend on whatever they want. But is there enough of them at auction to make this go to $2 million? That's why I'm thinking the people that buy this are going to be our age, where we remember all, you know, the movie Wall Street, and we remember uh, Enron, and we remember we remember all these corporate antics and stuff that went on in the 90s. I mean, still one of my favorite lines from a movie, Wall Street. Not Wolf of Wall Street, Wall Street. Greed is good. And I think that's what this car represents. That's why I think it appeals to our generation. It appeals to the people that watched Cannonball Run as a kid and fell in love with the Lamborghini and then wanted the money, that watched Wall Street and other people's money and saw these fraud cases, whether it be Health South, whether it be Enron, whether it be the um, dot-com bust, all these people that saw this money manipulation, Bernie Madoff and such, that's what this car is. Is it? It's an icon of that 80s and 90s excess in greed is good. And it's remembering a time that has become socially unacceptable now. So I think it's our generation that's going to buy this car. And I think it's our generation that will bid up this car, but I just can't see it bidding to $2 million. You know what, John? That's my opinion on it. I'll, 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 I'll 1.2. That's where I say this car is going to bid to. I want to end, end this conversation on a quote from a movie. Show me the money. And that's exactly it. That's why I said 1.2 on this car. Anything else for this episode of uh, NDG or we just encourage everybody to jump off to the website, nodrivinggloves.com, give us our feedback, be sure to subscribe, and tell a friend. And I want to know what you think. What are you going to pay for the Wolf of Wall Street car? Well, I'm not paying anything for it. <laughs> well, Derek, it's been great chatting. I look forward to our next conversation. Oh, am I supposed to end? I was waiting for Derek to say goodbye. Ah. <laughs> uh, Great show, John, and uh, we will talk again probably next week. Every Tuesday, and remember the shorts for at least the month of November. We'll see where we go from there. And as always, it's now time to get off your ass and go burn some gas. John out. This show was a part of the No Driving Gloves Network, produced and edited by John Viviani of Magic City Podcast work by Gary Conger. So until the next exit.